Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. And now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts... And welcome back to the House of Mystery. I'm Dave North Martino, your host today. Al R. Warren is uh, Alan R. Warren is on uh, assignment. No, he's not. <laughs> assignment, assignment. You're on trying, assignment. Trying to record you. That's an assignment. It's a hard That's assignment. assignment. It's a lot of work. We get Al tied up working the controls today. Yeah, somebody's got to. <laughs> How you doing, Al? I'm doing okay. I'm more worried about you. Yeah, I know. Now, now Tucker Carlson complained about me. He's going to really complain after. Yeah, I, I'm going to be. I'm going to be attacked left and right. That's yeah, right. he's not going to like this. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. Well, hey, today we have a very interesting show, and it's uh, kind of right in my wheelhouse. We're going to talk martial arts and uh, Taekwondo specifically. And you know, it's funny. Al, my wife is thrilled. I'm talking to someone else about martial arts instead of talking to her, you know, because I, I talk her ear off about martial arts all the time. So, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> thank, thank God she can maybe get some sleep. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm passionate. You know, <laughs> I am. <laughs> You're passionate about dessert. Well, that's true. That's that's the problem. Yeah. I <laughs> so anyway, I, I I read a you know a fascinating book on Taekwondo and Taekwondo history. And, you know, I began training in, in Taekwondo in, like, 1987, and I learned a tremendous amount of uh, reading this book. And uh, the book is called A Killing Art, The Untold History of Taekwondo. It's uh, an updated and revised edition. And the author today uh, who's, who wrote this book is Alex Gillis. Welcome to the program, Alex. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Let's start with this. Um, how did you get into uh, martial arts and... Taekwondo. Did you start with Taekwondo? How, how did this all come about for you? I was 16 years old in Ottawa, and just by chance, there was an incredible gym up the street run by Park Chung Tech. He was a Korean pioneer of Taekwondo. He helped create Taekwondo uh, a long time ago, along with about a dozen other Koreans. And I joined his gym. It was at the time affiliated with North Korea. I mean, I cared about politics at that time as much as I cared about anything outside of love songs or <laughs> just practicing Taekwondo. My uncle was in the Olympic style Taekwondo. He's older than me, and he was appalled that I joined North Korean <laughs> Taekwondo. Um, at that time, it was pretty serious. I mean, if a wow. South Korean was caught even talking to a North Korean, you were going to prison or possibly going to get executed. Wow. And only years later did I find out, after my instructor disappeared, that he was some kind of agent for the North Koreans, hmm. uh, based in Ottawa and traveling all over North America. Um, but at the time I was 16, I didn't know that. I just trained hard. I'll never forget the first day walking into that gym. At the time, Fap Lu, who was a Vietnamese Canadian fellow, a champion, a world champion, he had this shtick, which I didn't know about when I first walked in. Whenever a new student, student walked through the door, he would start working on the heavy bag. And he had a lead leg sidekick where, I kid you not, he would just kick the bag. I mean, at least 150, 200 pounds. Yep. The bag would just go straight up, hit the ceiling, pop a few boards off the ceiling. Yep. It was one of these styrofoam, you know, the plywood kind of white-backed 
ceilings. A lot of dust would come falling down, and then it would <laughs> swing back. He would hit it on the way back down as well. Yes. And kick it. So with that momentum, my jaw just dropped as as I learned years later, as I watched new students come through and watch this the, the same kind of shtick. His power was remarkable. Wow. And this guy was maybe five feet tall. Yeah. And he was fast as lightning. And so I love that. Being a young a teenager, I just love the speed, the power, the athleticism of traditional Taekwondo. This is totally unlike, at the time, Olympic Taekwondo. Yes. It's basically what Lyville now would call like hardcore kickboxing. Yes. Early 80s and before that, very few gyms in the world actually are practicing this kind of martial art. Yeah, it has changed a lot, hasn't it? Oh, it's remarkable how it's changed. I, I can't even watch most Taekwondo mm. bouts or shows or whatever you want to call them. The Olympics are appalling. I mean, I can't, I can't, I mean, ever since I wrote about the Olympics and the gargantuan amount of cheating and yeah. subjective judging, which is really unfair, when, when I found out the level of organization of cheating in the fighting arts or in skating, even in the Olympics, it's really, I mean, I just can understand it turned me off that whole level oh, of sports. And I, I traveled the world for my book for signings and looked for local gyms where they were doing the traditional style that I was used to from from a time, I guess it started in the 50s, early 60s, really. It took off late 60s, 70s. Yeah. And I kind of got involved in the early 80s when it was just petering out, but it was still its heyday in, in Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, and throughout a lot of the United States as well. What was the uh, training like back then? Training was hard. I mean... In the early 80s, it wasn't as hard as what I later learned. It wasn't like military yeah. style hard. Okay. Um, but that was, I would categorize, insane kind of training where, where people would vomit and then keep training. Or, or they'd, be, <laughs> they'd bleed during combat, like during a mm. sparring match and keep yeah. fighting. You don't fight when you're bleeding. But they tape <laughs> their hands or feet and keep going. Um, we, we did train hard, though. I mean... There were wild things like one instructor, another world champion actually. He he had us jog for forty five minutes, quite quite hard. Yeah. Then came a class stretch, and the class started. And I remember yes. not being able, like physically, not being able to lift my legs. And I was in very good shape. <laughs> there were times I'd go home and just lie down. I actually couldn't lift my limbs. I was so wow. tired. Um, but in terms of in terms of uh, patterns, which I loved, sparring, which I really loved, and breaking techniques, it was kind of the original way they did it. Um, yes. How, what do I mean by that? In sparring, you hit people. I guess that's the thing. Yes. There are laws in our province in Canada, in Ontario, you're not supposed to hit people. Um, oh. You're supposed to wear equipment and maybe yeah. bop someone. But in this style, it was kickboxing in the head, and everything was a target from the waist up, right, from the belt up. But they Correct. allowed sweeps. You know, we, we'd go in, you, could, you wouldn't hit the spine, of course, there were rules. But there yeah. were things we would do, like takedowns, sweeps, uh, full-on shots to the head. You're not trying to kill people, but um, it was... For me, I found it was scary. I mean, later when I transferred to Ottawa, Park jong Su's gym... He was one of these world-renowned fighting machines, and he knew how to train fighters. Yeah. His gym was, I would categorize as scary, the black book class, because there were always new people kind of circulating through from various parts of the world to test themselves, quote-unquote, or just to, to have fun or to visit, you know, because he was a really well-known open man at the time, a grandmaster. But some of the, the bouts there were, were quite scary, and that's where I learned that and through interviewing the book, too, A Killing Heart, that a lot of the fighters did know how to fight hard, like full contact. Hmm. But they would, they didn't do it because they didn't want to get hurt or, or, or hurt someone in turn. And, you know, I don't know if you know about the 60s <laughs> and the 70s, but the style of combat there with no gear sometimes before 67, yes. was it? Before June Rhee in the States and others yes. started... 
making rudimentary hand and foot gear, they would fight bare knuckled, you know, barefooted, mm. and they would smash their teeth, hit, and you know, dodging. They would move. You wouldn't want to take a direct shot, right? Yeah. And none of this jujitsu stuff. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go in and try to tackle someone to take them down. They would like knee you in the face, right? Like, exactly. like knees were allowed, sweeps were allowed, elbows were allowed. You, why would you ever try to hug someone even for a tenth of a second? Um, I saw this in the 80s too. Like, you didn't have a chance. If you took someone down onto the ground, there were no rules. Like, you would elbow, knee, whatever it took, gouges. Um, again, you're not trying to hurt, but it was, I do remember everything being quite difficult. Oh, and a lot of jumping. Oh, wow. Every oh, yeah. single class, we were in the air. So all the stationary kicks in, this, in Ottawa and Toronto, because Jungsu Park and Park Jung Tech in Ottawa, they both loved jumping. And it was a, a Taekwondo thing. It was very athletic. Um, mm-hmm. I scaled that back as I got older. I, I still jumped right into my to. 50s. I haven't done much now. I'm 55. I haven't done much jumping in the last two years. But I did love that part of the sport, that part of the art, the jumping, spinning kicks. Mm. And it's really tough to use those in sparring. But we, we learned how to pull them off with timing and even in sparring. Um, and that was just plain fun. You know, the movie kicks, the, the jumping 180-degree hooking kicks. Yes. The face or the, we learned a lot of lead leg kicking. So the legs were as dexterous as the arms. That's why folks like... Muhammad Ali, Bruce Lee, maybe even Chuck Norris, but no, he was another category. But a lot of Pat Burleson, I think, in the southern U.S. Yes. Um, a lot of Texas, Arkansas fighters. Mm. They're incredible Shotokan karate or Korean karate or just plain karate fighters, you know, and they're great with their upper body. They're super fast. At the time, anyway, they were incredibly powerful like if you got a reverse punch to the soul plexus you were going down if they could get it in cleanly <laughs> so they then trained to use their legs their lead leg like a jab as fast and the legs bigger than the arm so you can imagine that to the yep. soul plexus with the heel you know or this or the foot sword the edge of the foot um you know, or, or goodness forbid, like to the, your liver, you know, on the right side, I guess, <laughs> like right under the rib. They would train to do that. Park Chung Su taught me a kick once. He said, he passed away last year. Um, wow. He said, when, when people are going at you and sparring, you wait for them to commit. So if someone does a full-on turning kick or full-on punch, there's a split second where the limb is fully extended in that tenth of a second, that's when you counter. I never thought of that that way of counterfighting before that. I was a second-degree black belt. And he said, when that in that split second, that's when you go in. And he showed me where the liver was, right under that rib on the right. Yep. He said, you fit your foot under there. So slide it in on top of the leg or under the leg or under the arm. Well, he, that's what, I remember just being in awe of that <laughs> and trying to do it. You know, it's, it, you can imagine the timing, right? Um, yeah, and you'd shut somebody right down, hitting the lever. Yeah, even through gear. Like, we later wore gear, like chest gear, yeah. especially when I, I... I trained in Olympic Taekwondo for years as well because uh, I liked the quick... There was a way more quick little flicks of, you know, the kicks, the quick... They didn't hit the face with the hands. Kickboxing yeah. from the neck down. They kicked the yes. head at that time. I don't know if they still do. But anyway, that it was super fun. Yeah. What about uh, Taekwondo really uh, captured you as opposed to uh, karate, tai chi, and, and other arts? What I loved about Taekwondo was the holistic approach to the training. Like you would, there would be stretching, power development, strength development, dexterity, and a whole bunch of things that I didn't see regularly in the other arts. Like, I became a right-legged kicker, and my instructor told me when I got my first degree black belt, you need to try to become ambidextrous. Mm-hmm. Remember, so I just met a martial artist a few weeks ago, and he, he did a session with uh, Bill Superfoot Wallace, or was about okay. to do it, and Wallace said, you know, he, the way he fights, the lead leg, 
goes in with the side kick or it comes up to your face with a turn kick or comes up the other side of your face with a hook kick. And he was famous for that way of lead leg fighting. And that's yes. how we, that's how I trained in the early 80s, that kind of very difficult type of, of kicking. And I loved that I could do all that and then someone would say, okay, now do it on the left side too. You have to become ambidextrous. Make sure yes. you're left-handed and right-handed, you, that you're not stuck just with one thing. And we did takedowns, we did knife, like a, a defense against a knife attack, defense against a gun attack. I mean, what are you going to do if mm. someone has a gun on your face? Practically nothing. Um, but in the event you might have a chance against a gun or a knife or a stick or a bat, we learned all that. I mean, what do you do on the ground if you fall? You don't just give up. Mm. Yeah. Um, if the person's not on you, you you have some. You see this now, I guess, more in the MMA. People fight from the ground more regularly now, so we learned that. Yeah. Learn that stuff. Um, what was military kind of combatives? That the self defense aspect back then, I think. Yeah, it depends where you go. You know, and a lot of yeah. a lot of gyms focus on teaching children. Um, yes, that's what it's become. It's become. I, I taught kids for a while, and I'll, I'll never forget one class mm. where we just, me and my friend, we were, I guess, third or fourth degree black belts at the time. We're just showing the kids and their parents a little demo, and we pulled out a little rubber knife and just were demonstrating basic techniques. If someone thrusts a knife at you, that kind of thing. And one yeah. of the little girls, about six, seven, got very, very scared. I said, "Mom, is that a knife?" You know, like. Like we take for granted, I guess as martial artists, what we're doing. And so kids, it's too intense for kids and even for adults. I mean, I've taught yeah, many, many adults. And I don't know if you notice this, but the, most of them will drop out at the first punch into, to the head, really. Yes. The first big, it's, me, it's the face especially. The first big shot yes. to the face is it's very shocking. A lot of people will just, they're done. They're done, yeah. It takes some work to, to realize, oh, yeah, took a shot to the face. I'm actually okay. We had people who would leave halfway through the class because they were like two-hour classes. <laughs> and they were very intense. And, uh, you know, they'd go out to their car for something. And we didn't have anything back in the 80s, right? <laughs> you know? right. And then they'd be gone. I'm going to go up to step up to my car. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's where good instruction well, comes in. I think that's where... That's where they, it's more than physical instruction, right? Like, especially someone, yeah. I remember one fellow in the front row had a knee issue and he wouldn't kick with one leg above a certain height. Okay. I talked to him and he said, oh, I have a long, long standing knee problem. I cannot kick above this height. And I said, are you feeling pain now? And he said, no. Any pain whatsoever, like any twinges, anything at all? No. It turned out the fear was preventing him mm. from doing anything with the leg with the, because you know, he thought he was going to tweak the, the knee again. I said, let's try it just by stages. And it turned out he was perfectly fine. So that, that kind of instruction where you work with people's injuries, you work with their fears, mm. their inhibitions, especially a lot of people have been attacked, right? And they end up studying a martial art. They want to deal with bullying or they want to deal with their own fears at home, at school, at work, whatever. And, you know, with advanced training, you yeah. can transfer the physical training to conflict management psychologically or emotionally. Like, for example, a concrete example of someone is if someone invades your personal space, right? If they're just a little bit too close to you physically, how do you react? What do you say? You know, what do you do? You can, you can teach this stuff. Um, it takes a few years, but... Um, that that helps hopefully prevent someone from from quitting in the middle of a class and going to their car and driving away and never doing anything. <laughs> exactly. The terrifying and bop in the nose. So so where did uh, uh, the 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 name uh, Taekwondo come from? Because I, I know it's it, it's an unusual name in Korea, or at least it was. That's a very good question. In the 1950s, in, in 54, there was quite a famous demonstration of what was called Korean karate, and was really Shotokan karate mm. at the time. The South Korean yeah. president, a dictator, watched this huge military demo and saw this fellow, Nam, N-A-M, break something like 13, 14 
rocks, like roof tiles, with a fist, like a downward strike. Yeah. And the general, General Choi, he asked the general beside him, Choi, what did he just do? Did he break that with his hand? Like, break all those? They're pretty hard, clay tiles. Yeah, with his fist, he said. And General Choi was so scared to tell him his karate because the Korean president was anti-Japanese. Ja Japan had colonized mm. Korea for so long. There was no way he was going to tell him. So he made up some name that it was Taekyeon. Taekyeon was this ancient Korean dance-like martial art, quite, yeah. quite relaxed in some ways. It's a couple of like more striking, powerful moves. To make a long story short, Choi made up this whole story that Shotokan Karate was actually Taekyeon and named it Taekwondo, you know, the, hmm. the art of, of the fist and, and the foot, you know, or the art of the punch and the kick, which is what Taekwondo means. Um, and they used Chinese, Chinese, Korean, English dictionaries back and forth to make it up. It was all karate, though, up until, I guess, the early 60s. But Choi, uh, General Choi Hong-hee named it. He's the one that named it. And if anyone deserves the name founder of Taekwondo, he's the one. I mean, there were many founders of Taekwondo and their various hmm. special types of Taekwondo and styles and so on. He had to. He was he was a small guy like, like myself. And uh, yeah, yeah. he had to deal with bullies and uh, was always fighting. And, um, and, and so that, I think that's what got him to start training in, in uh, uh, karate at that time in the Shotokan. That's right, yeah. He, when I met him, I was shocked. I met him at, when he was 82 years old wow. in Toronto, where he lived, and he was five feet tall, no more than 100 pounds, and he had been that short wow. and that light his entire life. He bragged to me about how he wore the same size pants his entire life. <laughs> wow. I no pot belly, uh, whatsoever. <laughs> and I believe him. I saw the photos. I saw the collections of photos of him as a young man right through... And so as a result, he was bullied. And he had a, he was a loudmouth too. And he, um, <laughs> I would even go to say he was a brutal man. I mean, he just brutalized people he trained with or um, people he recruited to train others. So, of course, you know, a five-foot guy is yelling at you, swearing at you and bullying you. I mean, he, he was a three-star general and very powerful. Um, so a lot of people tried to put him in his place. So as a result, and that started when he was a boy, and as a result, he had to train in, in karate when he went to Japan to study. Hmm. And I think he probably exaggerated his training. He said he had a second degree level in yeah. Shotokan karate. I don't. I looked into that. I don't think it's true. He had some training, obviously. Interestingly, every single person I interviewed who had worked beside him for decades. So they knew him very well. I never saw him do martial arts. Oh wow! He was a puppet master. He he would yep. use words and tell others what to do, and then they would do it. Sometimes hundreds of times the same technique, and he'd perfect techniques and write his books with photos of these techniques and text descriptions of the techniques using other super athletes. Yeah, that was that was really eye opening. Yeah, and he did too. He he. he I think I read that he uh, only conditioned his right hand because of uh, Confucian values. He was a traditional Korean man. Hmm. Yeah, he, okay. he had a ritual. Every morning he'd wake up and punch something with his right hand to condition, to make the knuckles, the calluses on the knuckles thicker and the bones stronger, I guess. And the left hand untouched in respect of his uh, family, his mother in particular who he's very close to. Um, I mean, this is, this is a man of a family that was so traditional that his grandmother kept all her nail clippings in a container, you know, because of respect for the body. Wow. Like this is the 1920s, 1930s when he was a young man, which is like saying, you know, 1620s, 1630s, or even, even going way back. I mean, one little bit of this too, which is important, is that he was Korean and had lived through Japanese uh, colonialism, his occupation, 
for decades. Yes, and that was tough. That was tough. And then the Americans came in, and a lot of Koreans considered the Americans colonists as well. Like they, they were they replaced the Japanese. It's like a love hate relationship with the Japanese and the, later the Americans, starting in well, the Second World War, really. Oh wow! Um, and so he had a massive chip on his shoulder. He even when I interviewed him in 2001, he was racist against Japanese people and made fun of Americans. <laughs> so he, he, I mean, he, yeah, it's, it's not surprising he had to train hard and, and always have like bodyguards around. There's one story where my instructor, Park Jung Soo, was with Choi Hong. He had a dinner in Toronto and Choi got up to go to the washroom and he motioned for Park to go with him to the washroom. Park said, what, you want me to go to the washroom with you? Said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he wanted him to, as a bodyguard, just to, to watch the door while he went to the yeah. wow. And uh, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, Park was appalled. I mean, he went, but that's the kind of mentality, Choi. And a lot of the older guys, like Kim Young, who, Kim Young is a man who basically, with his entourage, got Taekwondo in the Olympics and connected to connected it to South Korean dictatorship as kind of like an arm of the Korean CIA. He was quite a powerful individual. He they're also they were also paranoid because um, mm. they just angered so many important people. And I mean, some of them were involved in full fledged assassination attempts, right? Wow. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about part of the world where it's in the sixties sometime. 30 North Koreans dressed in South Korean uniforms basically rushed from the North Korean border to Seoul, like trekked, to go assassinate the South Korean president, and they almost accomplished it. I mean, yeah, the Americans considered dropping a nuclear bomb on on North Korea a few times because of the, the wicked conflicts in the region. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems like there was a lot. I mean, I guess, I guess uh, General Choi, uh, maybe he was <laughs> right to want to have a bodyguard. I think so. I, when I understood the full context <laughs> of what he was facing, um, I mean, he himself was involved in an assassination plot where mm-hmm. with North Korean agents, he and a family member were basically planned to kill the South Korean president in 1980, I think wow. it was. When this president was to visit Canada and play golf with our prime minister, the elder Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the Trudeau of <laughs> the 80s, the late 70s, 80s. Um, yeah, as a world, I didn't understand. I mean, I, I don't know many people like this where they hang out with five-star generals and presidents and assassins and so on. And meanwhile, they've they have their their taekwondo gyms and so on because they love the art as well what would become world taekwondo or world taekwondo federation and now we can't use wtf anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but that uh, that was the name taekwondo was actually stolen wasn't it i think it was yeah yeah that he was enraged by that wow. yeah he in the late by 66 when Taekwondo was well established, and Bruce Lee started this thing, you know, with his styles of Taekwondo as well. And you remember the heyday with the movies, um, the 60s and 70s. That's when Kim Un Young and the South Korean dictatorship at the time stole the name Taekwondo and created the Olympic Taekwondo in, in 72, 1972. It's good they changed the name so it's not WTF anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess I guess General Choi was even imprisoned at one point. He was. I mean, a lot of the older folks, Koreans, yeah. lived through the Second World War and then the Korean War. And yeah, it was. If you read even a little bit of that, the Koreans just suffered horribly. So yeah. he almost died in prison during the Second World War. And then in a few battles during the Korean War, yeah, torture, prison, wow. the whole thing. And and he taught, uh, I guess, martial arts to the guards. He claims that he taught and demonstrated mm. what he okay. called 
It's interesting. Call it karate. I think he was still calling it Shotokan karate in 44, 1944. Yeah, I mean, who knows? This is like a... Yeah, know, knowing what I know now about prisons, you know, prisoners of war, the tail end of the Second World War, these prisoners were emaciated. You know, they... You probably know a little bit about that. They, they're starved, worked to death, a lot of them. You know, I can't imagine much energy to get up and start jumping around doing karate and running karate classes in prison. But he said he did He did some, and that, that kept him alive. Like, it kept him sane. That little part, I believe, like, even if you can flail your arms and legs around a little bit, doing a pattern mm-hmm. that is a, as a form of meditation, maybe that kept yes. him going. And he was one of the ones who survived the end of the second world war and yeah i feel like even during the pandemic just doing training at home you know kept me sane yeah you know it i don't know if anybody believes i'm sane but yeah you have to ask some of your colleagues there but um yeah <laughs> you know how it is you're cooped in a room yeah you you have to keep yeah. moving you need to keep doing things as you get older i mean whatever age you are so martial arts is just wonderful for that Again, Taekwondo, the way I trained it is like a whole body and mind training. Yes. It's a, for me now, it's a type of movement meditation. So every morning I'll go through my basic routine. And a lot of martial arts artists are like that. I mean, one common question when I meet old friends, yeah. which I saw once in a movie, um, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, is that what it's called? Yes. There's, I think there's a scene where one, Martial artists ask another, are you still training? And that's a question you always ask old friends. <laughs> you meet them. <laughs> like, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. Are you still training? Because that's what we do. We train to keep sane. Yeah. We train to be healthy. We train to focus. And so on and so forth. And I think the old training, uh, the way it was done with uh, you know major repetitions, you had a structure, and you just kind of followed that structure. And um, you kind of did things over and over again. And, uh, you know, today I think they, they kind of hide things in drills so that people don't get bored. But then, you know, they have a period of time where maybe they can't train at a school and then they don't know what to do. And uh, I think for us, yes, that's true. being, you know, old timers, we have that t- type of structure already and we kind of know just what to do because <laughs> you just did the you know, these same, these same patterns and movements and everything over and over again. That's a good point. Yeah, it depends how many years you've done it and how used you, you, know, yeah. use you are to training and how much room you have. Like a lot of, I was in a tiny condo for a lot of condominium for a lot of the COVID pandemic and I didn't have much room to move around. A lot of yeah. people don't have the room, you know. In, here yeah. in Toronto and in southern Ontario, we get a lot of snow in the winter. You can't go train in the snow. Um, you do what you can. <laughs> One thing I took from martial arts is there's no excuse not to train. Yeah. Like you can do anything if you have enough room, even like a tiny space, like a closet. Get your arms over your head. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about martial arts is it's empowering. I don't know if that's been lost in the movies with the spectacular kicks or, you know, the Olympics with the, the lame sparring or the, Foot fencing. Foot fencing. All the politics, you know, and some martial (laughs) arts, including the MMA styles, right? It's that if you train diligently in a martial art with a good, decent instructor and a few friends or not, doesn't matter. It's empowering. You feel things. You feel your body change. Like the class example is the first board, wooden board that someone breaks. Then they'll break two with a fist. And that's a concrete example of, I broke six boards for my fifth degree test, and that's a mm-hmm. concrete example of, of power. But there's more abstract versions of that in terms of empowerment. You know, like if someone's yelling at you for no reason, and do you, do you go into the flight or fight reaction? Do you go into shock? Yeah. You don't, actually, because you're used in the gym to, to sparring and facing. I mean, if it's good sparring and good training, you're, you're sparring and fighting in a safe space facing really scary people in a safe space. So you know you're not going to get your head knocked off. So you get used to that flight or fight adrenaline response That's from right. a controlled situation over and over. So if it happens on the street or at work, you know, sometimes even a colleague, their tone is a little bit off, right? 
So you get that yeah. reaction. Especially if a woman's getting bullied or a kid or something like that, or, or a guy doesn't like fighting, whatever. You get this reaction. So again, the martial arts empowers you to stand your ground. With Taekwondo, as, as, it, it, as it began to uh, uh, be created, I guess it was also, um, you know, there was all this espionage with the, the Korea uh, CIA and gangsterism mm -hmm. and, and, like you said, cheating in the Olympics. <laughs> mm -hmm. How did that all kind of come about and uh, kind of coalesce into this art? That's a big question. I, I, I was an investigative journalist, and I just dove into it. I thought people need to know how Taekwondo and Shotokan Karate and others started. And I got in trouble. Like, I immediately got into big trouble. People didn't want me to report on this. Hmm. But um, I was wondering that. Yeah, but I mean, I think if you dig into any martial arts to the beginnings, there's some form of street fighting, gangsterism, military training... The arts that work, quote-unquote, they have to be kind of tested somehow, either in war or on streets. This is typically what happens. I think only the honest or older martial arts leaders will actually tell you the truth. I mean, Hapkido is an example of, like, I didn't ever, I never wrote about this. but So Taekwondo, I mean, they, the martial artists became powerful in Korea in the military because of the Second World War and then the Korean War. And then from there in the Vietnam War. And so because it worked, you know, soldiers have to fight. They learn hand-to-hand -hand stuff as well as all the weapons and everything else training. Um, it just was, it was effective. It was Shotokan on steroids. They, they, they developed, uh, I guess the big test was the Vietnam War. The Americans and South Koreans teamed up with others from all over the world during that long, long war. And, you know, they kind of tested, quote-unquote, stuff. Um, what does that mean? I don't know. From the little I know, it was just, you didn't have a choice. If your gun or knife or whatever fell, you had to use your hands, yeah. your feet, or whatever, not to, not to be killed. I think the, the Korean CIA stuff, this espionage, secret service, was just all part of that as well. You know, the unfortunate thing is that under dictatorships anywhere, including South Korea in the 60s and the 70s, they recruited their best Korean karate or Taekwondo instructors for espionage missions, like assassinations, kidnappings. Mm -hmm. The one I wrote about was, in, was a global affair that started in, I guess, 67. It's very interesting that I discovered this. Like They, they kidnapped... The South Korean government, not North, the South Korean government sent martial artists, various types, plus Korean CIA agents and operatives and just, you know, hangers on to kidnap students and various people accused of collaborating with North Korea. And they flew them to Seoul, Seoul, South Korea, from Germany, across Europe, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia. And... Um, Today we call this kind of rendition. <laughs> after after 9-11, you know, people got more used to Canada and the United States and stuff, you know, plucking people from different countries and putting them in prisons. But this happened mm -hmm. in the 60s as well, and the Koreans were very yeah. good at it. And martial artists have training, so they, they were prime. Not all the martial artists did this, I mean, just some of, some of them. I mean, being in the CIA was a job, right? Like you... Yeah. It was like anything else. When I published my book, I had a few American CIA agents. One retired, uh, who would tell you was quite old, actually, did work in Afghanistan. As I read your book, he said, I, I really liked it. So a lot of, he had trained, was it Ethiopia? One trained in Ethiopia. He ran the CIA station for the entire country of Ethiopia. And I'd introduced Taekwondo there. And then his friend then kind of ran a program in Afghanistan after 9-11. And they, they said, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a job. We were in the CIA. And then we trained on the side because we loved martial arts. And, of course, if they had to use it, they used it. The, the one fellow who was in Ethiopia said he was, was it a battle in Vietnam? I forget where he was. He was stuck in a helicopter. Robert Walson was his name. That was it. He was 
his chopper went down in a jungle somewhere and he thought this is it I'm finished and it caught fire and he thought I'm going to die and he was quite an advanced uh, taekwondo martial artist I think fourth degree he side kicked a solid metal door I mean I don't know what kind of helicopter it was but he kicked the door which I guess was hot so hard that his leg went into his hip and he had to, he limped out and he had to have surgery on his hip and that's the way he survived because he managed to loosen this door get it off and get into the jungle and escape being captured and then he found some friends i guess and other soldiers um so like the koreans were similar you know they the stuff worked in very tense situations and they used it when they can't when they could well, I think it's amazing what you can do when, when you have training, you have uh, motive, and, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're under, you know, a life-threatening situation, you know, what the mind-body connection can do, you know, to, to, to get yourself out of, out of a situation, because that's pretty amazing. It is amazing, yeah. And I, I, I talk a lot about those kind of woo-wee, kind of movie-like scenes, because I've interviewed people who've told me that, and... Um, but, you know, they're everyday mundane examples, too, of this kind of stuff. I mean, good examples, like you, when you're tired and thoroughly exhausted at the end of a long work day, and you're alone, and you still have to work. You need to do something else, and you know it's going to be a very tough job. Because of martial arts, I, I know, and I know people who are like this, they, they feel they have more energy. They can feel that they're, they're exhausted, but they still have enough energy before they like, collapse from exhaustion or go to sleep it's hard to explain but you you know your limits i guess if you're empowered and you've you've trained hard and trained regularly you know okay i'm tired now and i'm really tired now i'm exhausted now i'm on the point of collapse like there's this whole range of of when you're working hard where you know you become more self-aware mm. and you know your limits more i guess psychologically emotionally and physically that stuff's empowering, and it's really useful. It's not in war. It's not in Korean CIA. It's not in American CIA. It's nothing. It's just you alone trying to get a job done. Yeah, and you learn, I think, through martial arts. You, know, you just get so much focus, you know, from um, all of the all the training that uh, you know it helps you to you know accomplish anything that that, that you're trying to do and anything that's difficult. Yeah, there's that razor focus. That's true. Yeah. Each personality is different, you know. Um, I think that's why, as as brutal as some of these martial arts leaders and um, like I think some of them were geniuses, the ones who created yeah. the martial arts in the 1900s. I do I do admire them. I mean, they created, they altered ancient techniques, created new techniques, modernized them. Millions, hundreds of millions of people practice martial arts in really fun ways, and their lives are enriched, and they feel empowered, and you can see it. I mean, the example is a lot of kids jumping around laughing their heads off, but you'll see it in adults' classes too. You'll see it at home, people training alone. Um, and I admire some of these older folks as much as I, they were terrifying, odd men. <laughs> they, they knew what they were doing. You know, they... They created a martial art in Korea, for example, Taekwondo in the late 50s or 60s. They created Taekwondo to empower the Korean military because the Koreans had been bullied by the Japanese and the Americans and so on for so long. USSR in the north, China in the north. There was an explicit strategy to train soldiers very hard in every way, including you know, Taekwondo or hand-to-hand -hand combat to empower them in various ways. And so this kind of got globalized, right? The Americans loved yeah. this in the 60s. You know, they just organized it. People like June Rhee, and he ended up in Texas, right? Some of the Texans, yeah. uh, Chuck Norris, through his Tung Sudo, they're like super administrators and organizers and marketers, you know? And it just boomed from there with the movies and Bruce Lee. And there's a reason it did, because it's not just spectacular to watch or do. And super fun, and it gives people a lot of things personally in terms of health and everything else. Our, our Korean master uh, back then, he, he was a, um, uh, he, he lived in Texas, 
He came. He came oh, yeah. to Texas. And, um, you know, and, and that was back in the time of, uh, uh, I, I hear the term, I didn't know the term at the time, but um, uh, uh, it was uh, Texas Blood and Guts Karate. <laughs> yep, I've heard of that, yep. And we kind of, my teacher would, would go down with his teacher and they'd go to um, uh, to, to, to his uh, dojang or uh, what, what people know as a dojo, the Japanese version of that, the uh, martial arts gym. Um, to, uh, to to Master An's uh, school, uh, it was uh, Mo Yi An. We we used to say An Yi Mo, oh, yeah. but uh, yeah. and he died, I believe, in two thousand and two. Um, but um, it, my my teacher would go down, train, and then bring that kind of back to us, and it was it was it was pretty hardcore and intense. <laughs> I had the, the honor of, of flying to Arkansas and then Texas, Dallas. For a book signing and a big demonstration, yeah, and it's just I saw I saw the level of the level of Taekwondo there, traditional Taekwondo. Yeah, it was impressive. Yeah, I remember Jun Ri told me the Texans fought hard. I mean, and and the people were big. Yeah. He was a short Korean man <laughs> and lived most of his life in the U.S. Right, but he he said he had to learn to jump really high and kick really hard because the Texans would just go at him. I asked him a stupid question too. I said, because he was known for jumping in the air and breaking boards eight feet in the air with really tough yes. kicks. I called him a Superman, I think. He goes, no, no, I was not a Superman. That's interesting. He said, I practiced that kick every single day. I just did it over and over and over. And C.K. Choi, Grandmaster C.K. Choi, who lives in British Columbia here in Canada, he said the same thing. He said, I remember he told one of my friends, a fighter, an MMA fighter, he said, find the, the techniques that work for you and just do them over and over and over again. There's, no, there's nothing superhuman or magical or spiritual about it. <laughs> do the things that work a lot. Yeah, that was, that was a humbling interview, that one, those two. It's interesting, too, because um, in those days... Uh... Uh, Junri was was part of uh, the Unification Church. Yeah, the Moonies. Yeah, and the Moonies, <laughs> and that's where I, I guess a lot of the, a lot of funding came from, along with the uh, KCIA, the Korean CIA. It, yeah, history is so loopy. Like that, it took a while for me to write those chapters because I mean I remember just holding up in a cabin here, in the woods, in Ontario, thinking I have to get through these chapters because. They just don't make sense. But yeah, the Korean CIA was funding a cult. I mean, basically it was a cult, pseudo-cult. The Moonies, as they were known. And they were they had a lot of money, both entities. Um, and in turn were funding Taekwondo events, as Taekwondo or Korean karate was developing in the 60s in the U.S. And Jun Ri was in the middle of it all. I think he left the Moonies because they wouldn't let him marry the woman he wanted to marry or something oh okay. that's what he told me and um i was wondering that i mean man jun ri was strange he he i mean i remember watching him like as a, an older man do a hundred push-ups which i think he did every day um that was super impressive but he he did have i don't know if you know much about the cult but he did have this whole personal philosophy which is quite odd and at the same time, while in the 60s, the martial arts were developing in the U.S. and Canada, and all the cult stuff was going on, and Korea Gate right through the U.S., which is mm. huge, is all over the front pages for, for months and even years in the U.S. If you're old enough, you'll remember that. Even through all that, the, the, the art developed. But in 1965, during one of the first televised, nationally televised martial arts events, I think it was NBC. It was NBC or ABC. And Junie ran a tournament where a few Texans, Californians, a whole bunch of others were sparring, and I think they did not use gear. No, no boxing gloves, no foot gear. And people were just kicking each other left, right, center, punching each other <laughs> in the mouth. It was so violent that they either cut the show or never showed another martial arts or Taekwondo event again. 
Wow. When you think now in 2022, like to MMA and the, the way they smash each other on the mats, the punching down of their faces and everything, like it, it's like at the time, I think I guess the difference then is that they they really end up in the hospital over and over again. Yeah. Um, it was funny. And that, that all happened, the development of the martial art to be like, hardcore. And then they scaled it back, obviously, because of laws and they didn't want to go to the hospital. Yeah, that's, that happened right, right straight through the, the cults and the Korean CIA and the American CIA a little bit, funding martial arts, yeah. Times do change. Do they, though? I don't know. Yeah, do they? They don't yeah, really. I think this stuff's still going on. <laughs> I mean, fighting's fighting. Now, um, how do you want people uh, to get in touch with you? Do you have social media, Facebook, website, Carrier Pigeon? <laughs> yeah, if people Google me, Alex yeah. Gillis, they'll find my social media platforms on, yeah, anywhere. And then uh, email, my email's all over the internet. Yeah, a2gillis at gmail.com. That's great. Well, we'll put all that information up on our website so our listeners can find you with uh, one click. So uh, uh, what's next? Uh, what's new on the horizon for you? Well, I'm writing a memoir and uh, short stories, so I'm, I'm, think, That's great. I'm thinking, it's funny because I, I, I kind of drift back into fight scenes. I just wrote a little script, and of course, there are two fight scenes in it. It's funny how that happens. Yeah, no matter what mm -hmm. I write, it ends up being with martial arts. Yeah, write what you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's awesome. Well, I have to know, who does the best fight scenes on TV and movies? Like Scott Atkins, like who, who do you like the best? You know what? They're all good. And what I found out is they all learn from each other. So I don't, I don't really seek out one, one or the other. I mean, I watched the Daredevil series when it first came out. And I interviewed that stunt mm. man, the uh, stuntman who was doubling for the Charlie Cox Daredevil character. He was a phenomenal acrobat and martial artist. Um, and the stunt people there were just so advanced. I forget the main names, but that's just one example. I mean, they, the, the recent um, Shang-Chi movie, you know, there's a split kick in a like subway scene, I think. Yeah. And it's just phenomenal. He did his own stunts after six months of training. So whoever he was working with, that was a phenomenal scene. Yeah, I don't... That's they crazy. just top each other, right? One movie after another. No, I trained him. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, there's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think people get wrong the most? about Taekwondo and, and karate and all of the martial arts. What, what do you think the general population mistakes? That's a good question. I, I think, I, I actually think people watch movies or they'll see martial arts classes and they won't be that impressed, I think, often. And maybe that's what's wrong. They don't, people don't often see real martial arts. Right. Um, that's hard to explain. I think that's it, too, because personally, I think because you see a movie like that, and it's done so easily, and it seems so carefree, and they seem to be really good at what they do. Everything's mm -hmm. perfect, but there's a lot of work behind it, and I don't think people that's it. really know that's how exactly much it. Is. That's very well put. And there's yeah. discipline, too, right? Not just work, but discipline. That's it. Strike. If that's the number one thing, that's it. Yeah, that. I'll often hear, I've often heard over the decades, like, who would win a fight, Bruce Lee or Muhammad Ali? Who would win a fight, Chuck Norris? Or who would win a fight, Jet Li? Or Bill? Like, there's such ridiculous questions. Each one of these athletes trained hard. And I guess that's one misconception, that people are born with some kind of gift. Or, I mean, there are super athletes who are genetically gifted. They're extremely rare. Most of them are just very hardworking. And in that sense, it's... A, Martial arts are wonderful because it's like anyone can practice them. You know, I remember one fellow who was 70 years old. He started training in Taekwondo, the truly athletic one, traditional Taekwondo. I remember sparring him. He was 73 years old and has black belt. He couldn't lift his leg above the knee. He had white hair. And I said, okay, I'll take it easy on him. I was bopping around, you know, a little bit cocky because I was young. He just punched me in the face. <laughs> Hold on. Boom. I went down. <laughs> okay. He can fight. So, and he had started at age 70. I said, I'll never forget that guy. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's inspiring. Why, why do you, but why do you think people take those courses? Like, okay, so at 70, let's say, all of a sudden I'm like going to take a Taekwondo class. What, what do you think the reason is people do that? Oh, there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, I met one Ukrainian fellow who was massive. He was 6'6 and quite large, and he was extra clumsy. I remember that about him. Big hands, big feet. He just wanted to become more coordinated, and he couldn't year after year after year. We liked sparring with him because he was just so big, and so we just like challenged ourselves. Could we reach his head? And then one day he had just slimmed down. He finally did it. He was overjoyed. He was like, and he loved the martial arts and just become much, much coordinated. I remember that I talked to him about that. Very thoughtful Ukrainian man. I've met so many women who've been assaulted, raped, who've gone into martial arts to feel more empowered. I can't tell you the number of kids, adults who felt bullied. I sort of went into training for that. And a lot of people just do it for health reasons now. You know, no harm in that. Um, I do worry sometimes about construction where they're doing for health reasons, quote unquote, and they're just flailing too much, hitting things that are too hard. They're just training too hard. It's a little bit too macho, you know. It's a way of mm. training softly, then harder, and then ramping up that's better for people, as opposed to, let's say, crossfit or fitness type training which is hardcore it's not good for is, the body there, at any age it doesn't matter is there a secret for for finding a a good instructor like is there something like if i want to if i want to go into training now and i want to and i want to learn something about it how, how do i know i'm getting someone good that's a good question you it's like anything else you you watch you talk you ask questions if you have an alarm bell that goes off, then you know that you shouldn't join, you know. Um, like there's the physical part of it. People train and instruct physically, and you can tell they're good teachers because they're doing certain techniques that are impressive. Let's be honest. A lot of people at first glance at a first class look impressive if you're just walking off the street, right? You don't know anything. But it's, a, it's extremely rare to find a structure who's thoughtful, who listens, who will teach a student at their own level, who's not patronizing, who doesn't show off. All these don'ts, right? And so that's what you're looking for. Someone, I guess at the end of the day, who can fit with the way you want to train. And some people walk in and say, I don't want to spark. I never want to fight. That's not why I'm doing this. So then you be honest with them. Can you do that? Can you not? So um, I want to be Karate Kid. <laughs> are you? Are you 13? <laughs> Uh, no, I just saw <laughs> the Karate Kid. What a uh, it, it, so what do you what do you think when you see a movie like that? Is that is that a good portrayal? I watched Karate Kid when I was younger and I loved it, but I don't I don't think it's a good portrayal. No, no, you 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 can only become a Karate Kid through a lot of training. And I remember in that movie there was not a lot of training. Hmm. If I'm remembering the, the I'm talking about the original first movie, the Karate Kid. I loved it when I saw it. Don't get me wrong. It inspired me to train. And that, for that, that kind of fantasy dream part of it inspired me to do stuff to get me started. That was wonderful. But then I got into it and thought, oh, okay, this is a lot of work, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, a lot of blood. Uh, I mean, the bloodstream that cuts, you know, didn't cut your fingernails, you scratched yourself, whatever. I didn't cut myself at all when I was doing the wax on, wax off, or <laughs> painting and stuff like that. Actually, you know who inspired me? Because I, I, but I'm a little bit older. Um, was the Kung Fu David Carradine? Oh yeah, that's right. Ironic because yeah. he didn't know martial arts. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it was it was so it just seemed so wise. So I was a little kid and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do: be smart. I watched that series religiously. I loved that series when I was younger. Yeah. And that was that was something that attracted me, that he was thoughtful and nonviolent and didn't want to fight. Um, I come from a pretty violent background. I grew up in a really rough part of Ottawa, of biker gangs, drugs, everything. And 
I knew a little bit about that, like violence and so that. In Parliament, you grew up near Parliament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then there was Parliament. And so I remember that show thinking, oh, but you know, it's ironic because he, he never wanted, the Carradine character never wanted to fight, but of course he always did. Yeah. And then he took yeah. care of business, you know, it is. Yeah. And you can snatch the beans from my hand. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we know it is time for you to go. Classics. <laughs> I love that show. I don't know why, just something about it, um, it mesmerized me as a kid. I just, uh, it was my favorite show. And then Charlie's Angels. But <laughs> there you go. I love Charlie's that's Angels. Another, that's another story. For various other reasons. All three that's of them. Another. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the original. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's nothing but the original. No watching these new ones. Well, it's certainly been interesting. I'm really glad you came on the show. Very, very uh, enlightening. I snatched the beans. You did. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.